We adore you, O Christ, and we bless you, because by your holy cross you have redeemed the world. Please be seated. Two weeks from today, the state of South Carolina is set to execute a man named Richard Moore. And he has the excruciating opportunity of selecting the method of his execution. This is a right in the state of South Carolina. The primary means of capital punishment in that state is the electric chair. But those convicted are given a choice of some other methods. You might think lethal injection. And that's an option, but it's an option closed to Richard Moore. Because pharmaceutical companies have decided it's bad business to sell the drugs that make for lethal injection. It's not profitable. There's blowback. There's protest. And so there's only one other choice he has. A few years ago, the state of South Carolina re-legalized firing squads of three men. And he has the opportunity to choose between the electric chair or the firing squad. What a choice. The illusion of a choice. There's actually four states where this is legal currently in the U.S. Um, and I don't want to, this isn't a sermon about capital punishment in the United States, so I do think those of us who follow one who experienced it unjustly should bear that in mind as we consider the issue. But it's, it's interesting. When I ask people, what do you think about Capital punishment via a firing squad, there's often a visceral reaction. It seems extra violent, warlike. You know, for the longest time, lethal injection is how we handle such things. After all, that seemed humane, almost like a medical procedure. And whenever we talk about such things in, in, in civilized, developed countries like ours, well, we look to put people to death in ways that are quick, maybe instantaneous. The less pain, the less suffering, the better. Certainly, we don't want to see it. Think about it. It's not televised. We put it to the side. It's too upsetting, too unfortunate. And I bring that up because our way of dealing with such things is so so very different than the Roman Empire and how capital punishment worked. The punishment that our Lord endured. Rather than quick and painless, our goal, Roman executions were intentionally slow, full of pain. Especially for those of the lower or the conquered classes, they were very public events not just an execution, but spectacle and show designed to maximize suffering and eviscerate the dignity of the individual. Roman soldiers were professional butchers. Whenever I hear someone say, maybe Jesus didn't fully die, I'm like, you don't understand a Roman soldier and how good they were at their job. And there was a method to this madness, that their executions were not designed for efficiency. No, they were executions with a message to let folks know we're in charge. 
we can and we will do whatever we want. And if you're foolish enough to do anything to challenge us, you may also end up nailed to a cross. The worst form of execution they had, maybe the worst form ever devised. How mysterious that our Lord was sent to take, take flesh when this was the means of execution, this horrible means. Um, and of course, they had other ways in the Roman Empire. If you were wealthy, if you were a Roman citizen, a privilege, a general, a senator, something like that, and you had gotten out of line, well, they allowed you to honorably commit suicide. Your sword, maybe poison. A little lower down the rung, the gladiator pits, and hey, at least you might die with a sword in your hand. Seems to be a nobility to that, a dignity to it. But the lowest, the worst means of death ever devised was crucifixion on a cross. Uh, Cicero, a well-known Roman who lived just before the time of Jesus, once wrote that the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. For the very mention of it is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. There's not a lot of, of writing about crucifixion. It was seldom spoken of because of the horror. You didn't write about it or talk about it in polite company at all. No one wanted to dwell long on this cruel method. It was reserved for, for the dregs of Roman society and the worst traitors and enemies. And frankly, anyone who would have witnessed a crucifixion and by the way, if you lived in a place like Israel, you would have seen one. Well, you would never have forgotten it. The sounds, the sights, the smells. That's probably why the actual crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth is presented in such succinct, staccato fashion by the four Gospels. Uh, tonight, we're in the Gospel of John. And John says of the process, verse 18, there they crucified him. Not a lot of detail. Not much else needed to be said. And it's worth asking, especially today on, on, on Good Friday, I think sometimes we ask, why did Jesus have to die? But a related question would be, why did he have to die so horribly? This method, this means. I mean, his cousin, John the Baptist, he ran afoul of those in charge. You remember what happened? They cut his head off. Quick, clean. It's not a crucifixion. Why couldn't he have been poisoned quickly? Why, why the scourging? Why the cross? Why, why the humiliation? and rejection designed not just to break down the body, but annihilate the person, the soul. And do note that while unjust, it's perfectly legal. It's all done in proper order. Ordered by the governor, carried out at the hands of, of sadistic artists of cruelty, 
after Jesus is betrayed, not just by his, his friend Jesus or Judas, but, but the people, the religious leaders who should have welcomed him as the long-promised, long-awaited Messiah, and he's rejected. God's people who were always to follow him said, we follow Caesar now. That's a chilling moment if you've read your Old Testament. This was the question of Fleming Rutledge. Fleming Rutledge is probably the best female preacher alive today. She's in her early 80s. Um, if you ever get a chance to listen to her preach, um, it is amazing. She is a matriarch in the truest sense of the word and a genteel southern lady. She has a magisterial work called The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus. And that was her question. Why not, not just why did he die, but why is it so terrible? Why this method? Why so horrible? And she found her answer uh, going back about a thousand years. St. Anselm of Canterbury said, you have not yet begun to consider the gravity of sin. You have not yet begun to consider the gravity of sin. In other words, the specific terribleness of this death by crucifixion, the physical torture and pain, the prolonged agony and suffering, the dehumanizing shame and nakedness that ripped every shred of dignity from the one being crucified speaks to the horror of sin. Capital S sin that infects God's good creation. Evil that we see, like we see maybe a new on the news recently. True evil, how do we deal with that? But also the specific sins of you and I. Things we've done that we're ashamed of, things that we maybe just hold close as pets. We indulge. Sins we commit against God and our neighbor, some that we resist and long to be freed from. And if you think about it, we're in the Gospel of John, and John has been telling us since the very first chapter what was coming. Jesus appears. He goes out to be baptized by his cousin John. And John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right there, it's like a good thesis statement. We know who Jesus is. The Lamb of God. The Paschal Lamb. The one who would be sacrificed. The one who in the Exodus was the blood on the doorpost and they passed by. And there was life. What's he doing? He's taking away the sin of the world, somehow dealing with sin, death, and the devil once and for all. That was his vocation. That was his mission. Uh, John Donne, who you may know from English class, he's a poet, uh, was an Anglican clergyman. He was the dean of St. Paul's in London. He said all his life was a passion. I still struggle to comprehend all the mechanics of how this forgiveness works. But friends, we don't have to understand it fully to respond with gratitude and praise while marveling at the self-giving love of God when we survey the wondrous cross. Love so amazing, so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. 
We adore you, O Christ, and we bless you. Because by your holy cross, you have redeemed the world. Now, in the Gospel of John, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, the events leading up to it, uh, surprisingly, are, are not couched as tragic capital punishment. If you actually read John closely, what Deacon Text read for us, in a weird, amazing, gracious way, John shows us a coronation. Uh, one that begins as a cruel joke. The soldiers mocking our Lord. A crown of thorns, a, a purple robe, hail king of the Jews. He goes out to his cross and, and we're told that in a mysterious way, he has a crown, though his crown was a crown of thorns, a throne, though his throne was a cross, and they, they nail a sign above it, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And when we start to realize what started as a cruel joke is actually narrating reality. This is the long-awaited King of the Jews, but we look upon the cross and see our Lord crucified, and we see the public revelation of God's self-giving love. Don't, don't divide the Father, Son, and the Spirit. This is an act of the Trinity, an act of self-giving love. Uh, von Balthasar, a Catholic theologian, once said that being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, the Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And while it's very true to say that, that Jesus was killed, put to death, John would have us know that it's just as true to say that he gave up his life a self-offering of love to carry out God's eternal plan, to purchase our redemption, our forgiveness, to begin the process of making all things new, to deal sin, death, and the devil a fatal blow, even as we wait for them to fall, finally. He said, it is finished. He bowed his head. He gave up his spirit. Do you remember what John said earlier in chapter 10? Jesus' words, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus the King is in charge. And out of his great love for you and for me, he lets this plan go to its completion. And I've actually spent most of my week focusing on what happens next. Praying about what happens next. Verse 34. This interesting thing John records for us. Says us that once Jesus was already dead, he had given up his spirit. That one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. 
and out came blood and water. Why does John tell us this? Well, he probably wants to know, us to know, first of all, that the real flesh and blood Jesus, very God and very man, really died. His letters, 1 John, they're, kind of, they're, they're messed up about that. He goes, no, I, I was there. I saw it. I want you to know this is true testimony that on the cross God died. A real death. Water comes out and... and you know, we could spend a whole sermon series tracing the idea of water in John. Uh, you know, some traditions, they have a three-hour service of preaching on Good Friday. And they still don't get close to exhausting the mystery and the beauty and the glory of the cross. Think about what you know of the Gospel of John and the theme of water. You remember when he goes to the well, he meets that Samaritan woman? And he says that I have living water. Later on, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and he will never be thirsty. There's something going on with water in John. Jesus is the source of living water, the, the fountain to satisfy our deepest need. And that's part of what's happening here. We'll come back to the idea of Jesus the fountain in just a minute. But it's also clear to me that, that the sacraments of the church, baptism and Holy Communion, are on display here. I, and I don't think you need to be an Anglican or a liturgical Christian. I actually think that these are holidays for all of God's people, the church, uh, to look and go, wait, if there is blood and water coming out of his side, well, that sounds like Genesis. That sounds like Adam. And the Lord opened his side and brought forth a bride. Here, the Lord's side is opened and out comes a bride. The church. Baptism, Holy Communion, where we go to be nourished. Where we go to find this living water, the bread that comes down from heaven. His blood, which is true drink. For we come to find the forgiveness of our sins. When we look at our king on the cross, when we contemplate it, I would ask that we would pray for grace to discern this, this fountain, to, to see gushing forth the forgiveness of our sins and the redemption of the world. Something else, John 19, verse 37. Did you notice John keeps talking about other parts of the Bible? It says, prophesied. This is foretold. This didn't catch God by surprise. And he actually quotes from the prophet Zechariah. I was struck anew this year of just the role of Zechariah in Holy Week. Zechariah is the one that tells us all about Palm Sunday. The one you're waiting on will come on a colt. You'll welcome him to Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 12 says they will look on him whom they have pierced. And you probably know that in the first century, they didn't have chapters and verses like we do. They didn't have smartphones to access the scriptures. You know how they referenced the scriptures? 
if they were going to talk about a section, they just told you the first line. And then you knew everything being evoked. If I says, say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. All of Psalm 23. By the way, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Actually evokes that entire psalm. And what comes at the end. But here, what's this bringing to mind? They will look on him whom they have pierced. I want to read to you the full context of this prophecy that John appeals to that tells us about what Jesus is doing here. Zechariah chapter 12 says, I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Zechariah talks about the mourning, the anguish, the grief that will be poured out on this day. And it ends with this line from Zechariah chapter 13. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. My brothers and sisters, the fountain open was from his side to cleanse us from sin and all unrighteousness. There is a fountain open working to redeem us and make us holy. We can access it even now. We're invited to come. St. John Chrysostom says that it was not accidentally or by chance that these streams came forth from Jesus' side, blood and water, but because the church has been established from both of these. Her members know this since they have come to birth by water and are nourished by flesh and blood. The mysteries have their source from here so that when you approach, get this, when you approach the, the chalice, you may come as if you are about to bring it from his very side. St. John of Damascus says the Lord made a fountain of forgiveness gush out for us from his sacred and immaculate side, water of regeneration and the washing away of sin and destruction and blood as drink productive of life everlasting. This idea was captured beautifully by an English poet, a hymn writer. I want to tell you about him as we close our sermon, our meditation tonight. It's a hymn writer by the name of William Cooper. Uh, by the way, I always thought it was William Cowper. I just learned this week it's William Cooper. There you go. He wrote a hymn called Praise for the Fountain Opened. It's also called There is a Fountain. And it came out of a really a, a terrible season in his life. Um, he had suffered all his life from severe depression and mental illness. His mother died when he was young, and as a young man, he went to take the equivalent of the bar exam and had a full-blown breakdown. He was institutionalized for a year and a half in an asylum, an 18th century asylum. 
I'm guessing that was not pretty or enjoyable. While there, someone gave him a Bible. And he would read it, and it would bring a, a semblance of peace. Such that he began to slowly improve. And, and finally they said, okay, we think we can let you out. But you can't go live on your own, because you may hurt yourself. And so they sent him to, to live with a, a close friend, a family friend, uh, John Newton. Do you know John Newton? Wrote Amazing Grace. He, he was a slave trader who was converted and then turned abolitionist. And he, he took this man into his home. He befriended him, cared for him, prayed with him, wrote songs with him. And they released a hymnal that is foundational for, for all we know of sacred music, especially in the English church. Cooper remained afflicted by severe depression but it's so that he tenaciously clung to his faith. Not resting on his own strength, even the strength of his faith, but fully trusting in the Lord Jesus to bear him up, even in his weakness. And I'd just like to share with you some of the lines from that hymn. There's a fountain. Maybe you know it. Maybe it's new for you, but man, sometimes poetry and praise really is the best way to reflect on things like Good Friday, as we survey the wondrous cross together, as we realize anew, or maybe for the first time, that this was done for us. This was done for our salvation, because of our sin, because he loved us. The first verse, there's a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The last verse says, Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. I've got a friend, he's a priest in Charleston, and he wrote a version of this and wrote a little tag, a little chorus just says, come, come to the fountain. Come and be satisfied. Come, all who are thirsty. These waters will never run dry. We adore you, O Christ, and we bless you because by your holy cross, you have redeemed the world.